A popular trend has been taking the food service industry by storm recently, and that's pop-ups. These hyper-focused restaurants are a way for restaurants to test out new menu items or concepts at a much lower cost. And these ideas can truly range far and wide, from a replica of a restaurant in Bob's Burgers or a farm-to-table experience in the middle of the Canadian mountains to a VIP red carpet experience at McDonald's. The options are truly endless. But where did this popular experience come from? And more importantly, what makes it so intriguing to customers. According to a Google Trends report, the phrase pop-up only really became popular in 2014, but stemmed from a well-known term your parents or grandparents may know from the 1960s. Hi everyone, I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. Back in the 1960s, supper clubs were an exclusive way for people to socialize over affordable food. As these seemingly high-class affairs grew in popularity, they essentially developed into this underground scene where only those who were socially in the know could attend. Similarly to pop-ups, these supper clubs would generally have an unusual aspect to the customer's dining experience. This could be anything from inviting a world-class chef to cook for the masses, dining in a different location, or even testing out stranger exotic food combinations. Now, there probably were a series of supper clubs or pop-ups that hit the mainstream, but technically, the first documented pop-up concept that became really sought after happened back in 2007. Chef Ludo Lefebvre created an LA phenomenon called Ludo Bites, where he'd set up a temporary dining experience at a new restaurant and would feature gourmet foods. Every couple of months, Ludo would then change the location or even just some menu items. But there was one thing that was constant, the extreme popularity of his concept. Los Angeles connected with Ludo's idea almost instantly, so much so that when new reservation blocks would be released, they were gone in less than 20 minutes. After the frenzy of Ludo Bites, pop-ups grew to become a large part of the food industry. Aside from the exclusive allure and FOMO it may bring to some, it's also relatively inexpensive for owners to run. Since traditional brick-and-mortar restaurants come with a high overhead to open and maintain, pop-ups give chefs and owners the opportunity to, dare I say, pop up in random locations and test out new ideas with consumers without the hassle of high fees. Even if the pop-up is stationed at a pre-existing diner or restaurant, the temporary location normally pays a small percentage of their profits to the owners of the space. It's still less than what you would traditionally pay for to maintain an eatery. Plus, too, it gives chefs the freedom to try something new that may not necessarily fit into a menu at their existing restaurant. And though there are a lot of positives about creating your own pop-up, there can be a handful of cons too. For example, if you aren't promoting the concept or marketing it in the right way, it might not catch on to the right foodie audience. And let's be honest, without an audience, there aren't hungry customers waiting to book reservations within 20 minutes or less. Also, depending on where the pop-up is located, obtaining a liquor license can be quite the hurdle to jump through. Take it from me. In addition, the food and labor costs may end up eating a large portion of the pop-up's profits as well. Although not all of them, many of these concepts can often rely on higher priced items with expensive ingredients. And let's face it, marketing, popularity, and finances can truly make or break any idea. So it makes sense to test it out in a temporary fashion. I think pop-ups are fun. I love that you get to try something new. You get to experience something unique. Zach, what's your thoughts on pop-ups? I mean, I live in New York City, which is like pop-up land, yeah. especially lately. I mean, yeah. we've, we, every part of the country gets these, but I feel like so many people now, if you're not in Miami, which is like the, the hottest spot for at the moment, everyone's trying out concepts here. Big chefs, small chefs, first timers, lifelong 
you know, cooks. It's been really interesting for me to experience it. I don't make it to all of them. I know you, you pointed out the Bob's Burger one, and that was actually the first one they like put on my calendar and like circled in red ink. Oh I was, yeah, like, a huge Bob Burgers guy. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm a sucker for a sucker for puns, and that show nails it. Yeah. So, but that's honestly, I remember the first time I noticed these things happening. It just it seemed that they this started catching on not long after I opened up my place. Mm-hmm. And in the beer world, collaboration's a huge thing. Uh, people jumping, you know, to other breweries to make new beers. Restaurants were starting to do the same thing as kind of a way to to bring a lot of marketing power together. And then you kind of amplify each other's idea with your own audiences. It's it just, it's a win-win for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Have you actually ever tried to do this yourself as a restaurant owner? You know, through COVID, we did a couple of small ones before COVID. It felt completely different than it does now. Uh-huh. Through COVID, I've actually done a few pop-ups in earnest that have, you know, for the same thing I was just saying, it helped me promote a couple of chefs that I know that didn't have jobs at the time mm-hmm. who were looking to get new concepts off the ground. We hosted a Filipino food pop-up, which was fantastic. And it brought in a lot of people. She had like a huge fan base, really excited to try her stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a taco pop-up with a good friend of mine that again brought in so many, so many different people who would never have come to my my business otherwise. Yeah. Uh, we, we do breakfast taco pop-up, which we're actually hosting again in, in a couple of days. So. Oh, great. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun to do because it really changes up the day to day. And is this where the taco is wrapped in a waffle instead of a shell? Oh, oh my God. I think that's the Taco Bell take. That's the Taco Bell Which I don't think is the same thing. This is a Norteño like breakfast taco from Texas, like big in Austin. Ah. So (laughs) maybe someday I will try. (laughs) Don't diss the Taco Bell taco. Apparently their breakfast items have done exceptionally well since their launch. Um, That was the other item that I circled in red ink on my calendar i really really wanted to try the waffle taco oh, see? i still haven't done it though <laughs> oh man That's something awesome. to look forward to though hey, what do you think about them do you do you go to pop-ups i mean as someone who's clearly a fan of restaurants yes the last one that i went to though that i remember going to like a real experience pop like pop culture pop-up i would say was the harry potter bar in chicago which you could not even get into i think i managed to get these last minute tickets and i I don't remember. All I know is that it was, it had to have been pre-COVID because we were so packed in, no one had masks on. You know, I feel like your your restaurant experiences are now defined as post-COVID, pre-COVID world, depending on how packed Absolutely. in you are and how many people bump into you and spill your yes. drink. Remember that? So, and I remember we. Yeah, right. And I remember waiting in this absurd line for Butterbeer or their version of it and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just waited in line for this. Someone just added like, an immense amount of butterscotch syrup to some sort of alcoholic drink. But I will say that the decor was amazing. Like I, I did actually feel like I was on a Harry Potter set. They did such a good job flipping that space. And I think also there's, I like the idea of restaurants popping up and doing these really special experiences. I know there's a really popular one in Chicago. It's kind of like a modern day supper club where they only invite 20 guests and you have to register in advance. And then it's this amazing menu and they switch the chefs around and you get to taste like 15, 20 dishes. So you leave there five pounds heavier than when you started, but they're really cool. Yeah. I've honestly, it's funny you mentioned that because it's so much of it, like with the Harry Potter concept, it's really sometimes more about the actual vibe and the theme yeah than it is about the actual product for a lot of restaurants the a, a big thing around us has been a christmas bar pop-up that took off of two blocks oh, from where yeah. i live and has now since pushed out to hundreds of locations around the world as a bit of a franchise mm-hmm. it's wildly successful but people want to sit down and have an insanely holiday driven experience you know what once thanksgiving passes you can get christmas and hanukkah cocktails 
and sit down like while Mariah Carey is blasting in the background. And that sort of <laughs> yeah. thing really works. Every year you go, I can barely get a reservation. And this thing has been going for five, six years now. Um, oh, and yeah. I, personally, I love it. Santa Baby Bar in Chicago is a huge hit every year. You go in there and the walls, the ceilings, the floor is barfing Christmas. I mean, if that is not the most immersive Christmas experience that you can find in Chicago, I don't know what is outside of the Chris Kindle market, which is also extremely popular, but uh, which is also, I guess, well, not really a pop-up, but an experience. Did you see in Chicago that Netflix shut down the Stranger Things pop-up bar? This went on. Yeah, they sent the most hilarious cease and desist. It said, look, I don't want you to think I'm a total wasteoid, and I love how much you guys love the show. Just wait until you see season two. But unless I'm living in Upside Down, I don't think we did a deal with you for this pop-up. You're obviously the creative type, so I'm sure you can appreciate that it's important for us to have a say in how our fans encounter the worlds we build, et cetera, et cetera, but you need to take it down. I mean, what the, is that not the most amazing cease and desist you've ever seen from a pop culture pop-up truly that's incredible clearly someone that wasn't the lawyer handing that down or it was a very (laughs) bored lawyer who knows no but that was that's very very that's kind of them to do it that way season desist don't usually come across like that that's more of like a boilerplate situation yeah talk about using you know this bar for your own promotional i mean that letter went viral so it's like they really they really made lemons out of or lemonade out of wait no what's the saying you make yeah you made lemonade lemonade out out of lemons yeah there you go. I wanted to say make lemons out of lemonade. And I'm like, wait, is that right? I don't know. I guess I'm in upside down land too right now. Yeah. I was going to say demonic lemons, whatever the, I don't know, whatever the, the Stranger yeah. Things equivalent is. Yeah. That's, that's truly, that's yeah. a special take on it, but it also shows you that pop-ups aren't as easy to execute as you think. If you maybe have a great idea, maybe you have to ask the right people for permission first. Right. You, you can't. Sometimes it's, it's a lot of people shoot first, ask questions later or ask for forgiveness after, but there's not a lot you can do if uh, your concept is tied to a a specific copyrighted brand, I guess. No, but I, but you know, outside of the pop culture thing, the idea of the food itself and selling one or two really, really specified food items. I mean, Chef Suzanne is going to be on the show right after this, and she's going to talk a lot about her new gourmet biscuit pop-up milk drop. And I love that concept of taking one item and then just jazzing it up and blowing it up that's the dream you find one thing that you can do well and do it multiple ways and then you just you know you're getting people in because then you know some maybe you go in thinking you want a savory biscuit and you end up getting a birthday cake biscuit exactly and you're you know you learn something right candles and confetti included yeah i mean I'm, i'm here for it Speaking of pop-ups, we're excited to have Chef Suzanne from Atlanta's Buttermilk Kitchen here with us today. She is just incredible. I swear she has been on almost every best of brunches list in America. She was on Guy's Grocery Games on the Food Network, the Today Show, and so many other network specials and publications. So we're going to talk to her about her experience, how Buttermilk Kitchen came to be, her incredible new cookbook, and her upcoming gourmet-style biscuit pop-up, Milk Drop, which looks amazing, might I add. So with that, hi, Chef Suzanne. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes. So your restaurant has become quite the staple in Atlanta. You have a huge social following and your food is just totally drool worthy. Did you always grow up in Atlanta? I did. Yeah, I'm actually born and raised about a quarter of a mile from the restaurant, which actually just completely happened organically. We kind of stumbled on the space and I originally had wanted to be closer in town. Mm-hmm. But it was just a, it was kind of a great opportunity and it 
kind of all fell into place. And so it's been really fun to sort of, you know, have a, a restaurant in the neighborhood that has been so close to you that you grew up in. That's very nostalgic. And so, yeah, I didn't make it too far <laughs> away from Atlanta. So. so I always like to talk to people about this as someone there. Everyone always wants the Genesis story or what puts you in, into the hospitality industry. But how did you get to discover your love for cooking? Because clearly you're, you're quite good at it. Did, did something happen in your life or did you have any kind of family influence that, that brought you into that world? Yeah, it's, you know, it, it wasn't just like one moment. I mean, there's, there's definitely things that I can tell you about my past that I always knew. Um, I had this really mm -hmm. deep appreciation from food. And I think that started at a really young age because my family loved food. Um, dad's background was Italian, grew up in this. Um, we always had like fried chicken, yeah. but then tomato, mozzarella, basil platters with spaghetti, like this kind of like perfect mashup of Southern oh. Italian, which was awesome. And um, my mom is a great cook as well. So we just had a, just had a real appreciation for food. We always broke bread together. You know, holidays were always a big deal at our house. Mm -hmm. And I think it just kind of evolved like that. And then when I went to college, I actually started watching the Food Network. It was yeah. when the Food Network was really big. And I, I was about a senior in high school or in college. And I started watching Rachel Ray, 30 Minute Meals. And as cheesy as that sounds, I would literally like go to the grocery store and try to recreate exactly what I'd seen on TV. And I just, throughout the process, realized how passionate I was about cooking. And one thing led to another. I went to culinary school and worked in a bunch of restaurants. And, and now here I am. I bet your roommates loved that in college, that you were you were always cooking. Yes. <laughs> roommates and, and a very lucky boyfriend too have we between us we cooked a lot. So it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's awesome. So when did you decide that you wanted to do Southern style cooking and you wanted to focus on that? I you know, I, I never it it wasn't so much that I really just wanted to focus on Southern food. I, I really consider myself more mm -hmm. of an American food chef. And it, I just happen to be in the South and obviously have a, a deep appreciation for Southern food because I grew up around it. But like I said before, I wasn't raised by, you know, a, it's not the typical Southern story where I was sitting with my Southern grandmother over biscuits. I had this um, really eclectic background of food growing up. I had a German nanny that helped take care of us that taught me how to make omelets and Linus potatoes and oh, wow. spetzel. And, you know, then again, my father had this Italian influence. So we, we definitely had Southern food at the table because we lived in the South, but it was also just this collection of food. So I feel like I've taken that and tried to make it relatable to the audience I'm cooking for, right? So obviously we have these Southern staples, but mm -hmm. I, I have a lot of technique in my, my cooking as well. So, well, I'm a self-professed pasta fanatic and I'm, I'm very excited to see what a Southern mashup of Italian food and Southern food looks like, because those are two things. I also, my business happens to be right next door to a Southern style uh, fried chicken restaurant. So oh, uh, two things I can't get enough of in my life. So I, I guess I have looked back into your history a little bit, and I'm actually really curious. You started off so, sort of similar to me. You you took kind of a, a whim with, with very little funds in the bank account, it sounds like, to open up a yeah. spot in downtown Atlanta uh, yeah. in, in a pretty high foot traffic area. Uh, what was mm -hmm. that? That was the, the, the Hungry Peach, it was called? 
Yes, and that was actually in um, in, in the Buckhead area. We were in a design center. It's called ADAC, the Atlanta Decorative Art Center. And it was it basically houses about 78 designer showrooms. And it, it was used to be only open to the trade. And so basically, we were the food and beverage outlet for all those designers and employees and then the customers that would come in. So we, my best friend and I started it. It was an opportunity that kind of came across our laps. We had no idea what we were doing. We were 26 years old. We had like $5,000 between the two of us. And she was um, the front of the house person and I was the back of the house. And we literally just poured our soul into it. And we, as we like to say, with a wing and a prayer and $5,000. And we just somehow did it. I don't know how, but um yeah, it was as you know, as I'm sure you know too, that is not nearly enough money to start a restaurant. I mean, I think you need at least five hundred thousand dollars to even compete. But um, we were we were real short. We were about, about hundred times what you had. Yeah. Short, <laughs> we uh, we made it work somehow. Well, what kind way, of food? So. What what kind of food did you serve there? So it was just a little cafe, breakfast and lunch. Um, we were mm-hmm. open Monday through Friday, and again. Um, we really had to appeal to the the employees. So mm-hmm. we were mainly there. So we had to compete against that, like, you know, lean cuisine or that prepared meal that they would bring every day. So a lot of it was kind of a, a mashup of always mm-hmm. having like a, a very affordable option, right? So like uh, some really nice sandwiches, salads, but then we also needed to have a couple more fine dining elements for the designers and their clients that they would bring in. So it was a ch- it was challenging in the sense that we had a lot of we were really ap- trying to appeal to two completely separate tar- target audiences. Um, but kind of some staples we had we were really known for our pimento cheese. Uh, we had this Ooh. awesome peach cobbler cupcake. We did like great brownies and sweets breakfast sandwiches, good chicken salad, um, you know, just it's kind of like an upscale bistro cafe. Did you find that that was part of the influence of you then starting Buttermilk Kitchen and that you did brunch and lunch there? Because you don't do dinner there. Is that correct? No, correct. And I, I really, so, you know, when I got my start, I was in fine dining. I was in the night restaurant getting off at one in the morning, you know, and I, I quickly learned I did, I hated the nights. I really got burned out very easily. And so I, I've always been a morning person. I've always loved breakfast. And and to answer your question, yes, like at the Hungry Peach, I loved that we were, you know, breakfast and lunch only. You could, you started your day probably earlier than most people, but you also were allowed to have some of that normalcy as far as like, as all your friends and family have that more of a nine to five type of thing. So I knew when I opened Better Milk that I wanted to do, to continue in that arena. And um, it's also it proved to be a really big niche because there's very little chefs doing breakfast. So um, I think having it that chef-driven breakfast lunch restaurant that Buttermilk is uh, really made us stand apart from the competition. Yeah, it's honestly, I, I'm sure that's been the case down in Georgia. Uh, and down in Atlanta, at least from up in New York, I can definitely tell you that people are only very recently kind of getting onto that breakfast trend, or at least as like their focus. Um, it's really cool to see that. Yeah, it it really is. It, it's always been an afterthought to most chefs, you know, so it's, um, it's exciting to be in that arena. It's a weird thing because we, 
we are a country that appreciates breakfast culture. I feel like everyone here knows, you know, the most important meal of the day, but we usually give it such sad execution and kind of more of a necessity thing that yeah, enjoy. I agree. Uh, unless it's like a holiday. So it's really cool that you get the, uh, you get to focus and kind of help build upon that culture, especially again, like I said, I'm a, I'm a blue blooded new Englander. I've like never like growing up breakfast was something very different, but my exposure to all this new stuff has really opened my eyes to like the culinary adventure that you can kind of promote through breakfast. Yeah. It's, it's, you're, you're exactly right. I think that a challenge for us is that you compete with the granola bar or the protein bar or the people have their, um, little breakfast rituals, I guess you'd say, you know, it's, they're out the door. They're usually in a hurry, cup of coffee, you know, something really quick they can take with them. So um, it, it has, sometimes it is a challenge to get them to, to stop and, and sit and enjoy breakfast as a meal. What did you do after the cafe? And um, how did like, how did that experience lead into your next experience in the food service industry? So I knew that, you know, because it was a captive audience and we were Monday through Friday, it was, it was really hard to appeal to more of that outside market. So I think it's just, I wanted more and I really wanted to step outside of that, almost like a comfort zone, I'll call it. And yeah, open like, like a real public restaurant, see if I could do that. So the opportunity came across for me to do buttermilk and I had a partner in the hungry peach. And so buttermilk was going to be my own thing. So we sort of branched off and I was still an owner in the hungry peach, but my partner was still running it. And then her husband actually got transferred up to Boston. So she of course moved. And then that, you know, once buttermilk had started, it was very difficult for me to run both. So I ended up selling it and then just putting all my focus and energy into buttermilk kitchen. So Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it really just w- was a natural progression for me as a chef. It was, it was an opportunity for me to cook in front of more people, mm-hmm. a larger audience, but still keep a similar like format and similar type of menu. Um, but just allowed me to expand on it. Yeah. And I'm sure you used a lot of the experiences that you learned in that cafe. Then you took a lot of that. Oh, definitely. To buttermilk. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like a perfect incubator, you know, for someone that, that wanted to start and it allowed the opportunity for us to start up really young with not a lot of money. And then you get some experience under your belt and then, you know, people take you a little bit more seriously. So it was, it was great. And then after she, mm-hmm. you know, moved and relocated, we, we ended up selling the business and, um, and it's actually still around today. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. So that was actually where I wanted to go with this because everyone, I, I mean, we were both the same age when we opened up our first places, it sounds like. And I remember thinking, oh, once you've done this and those first few years are so difficult, so rewarding, but so difficult at the same time. And thinking that as soon as the opportunity came to open up another place, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to do everything right the next time. Nothing could possibly go oh, wrong. Yeah. And then of course, nothing <laughs> Nothing goes right. Everything went Same wrong. Same thing. Yeah. Did, you, did you find that when you carry over to your second restaurant business, which a lot of people don't realize it's not as easy as just copying yeah. and pasting. What did you, what carried over well and what didn't, or like what, what did you have to relearn or what, what had to change? This could be a whole new podcast, but. Um, <laughs> no kidding. I know. I know. The, the, tri- the thing about the cafe that was so different and I was so underprepared for when I opened Buttermilk is we were in, we were serving a captive audience. So everyone was regulars. We were nine to five. We were essentially nine to five Monday through Friday. 
our numbers were exactly the same week to week. Um, so we had a whole maintenance team. If something broke, <laughs> they were there to fix it in five minutes. So when I got out into, you know, air quotes, the real world, it was just, uh, it was completely different. I really felt like I knew what I was doing and I was ready. And it was just everything that went wrong essentially went wrong. So it, you know, some, some things carried over, but, and, and I was able to implement some systems that had obviously I'd, I'd done at the cafe that had worked, but it was just so different than anything I had expected. You know, when you're dealing with the general public, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. Things that I thought would work didn't. Uh, I, I had very little money. So what were, what was some examples of that? Oh, gosh. About, you, you say a lot of things went wrong that you didn't know and working with the general public. Do you have some I, good stories yeah, for us and there? I think, you know, uh, part of it is being a young chef is I had a huge ego, as most of us do. And I don't know where that comes from. We're just cooking food. We're not saving lives. <laughs> like I, I've never really gotten that, but it's such a real thing um, is the chef ego. But one of the things that I thought, I'm trying to think of like a specific example. Oh, I know, I did not want to have decaf coffee at a breakfast place. And that is something oh. I was crucified for when we opened. I respect that. I respect um, that call too. Makes to be sense. Honest. But, I, but I understand that that's yeah, a very chefy call I mean, to say like, no. It's yeah. a very chefy ego call, right? It's like not having, you know, I, I think someone told me one time they had opened a bar and they didn't want to have like Jim Beam or Maker's Mark or whatever. And it's just like, there's just things you just can't get away with. And so, you know, I was, I was mm -hmm. pretty much crucified by that, by the public. And then I hired a really inexperienced younger staff. And I think because of my own insecurities, right? It was like, I was almost fearful to hire someone that knew more than I did, where I should have hired a front of the house team that had way more experience than I did. But instead I did the opposite, right? Because I felt that I didn't want other people to tell me what to do or have more experience than, than I did. So that was, that was a big, big mistake as well. But there were so many, there, honestly, there were so many mistakes. There were so many bad reviews in the beginning, but it like, it just completely taught me to be humble and modest and just keep pushing and keep your head down and just go for it. And I would not have done it any other way, to be honest, because it really like taught me who I was. And it just, it made me so grateful and appreciative for the experiences and opportunities I had to, to kind of grow and then meet people and form our regulars. And to this day, there is this scathing review we got in the very beginning. And I read it once a year and I tell myself, I'm only going to read it once a year. and I'm never going to read it again. <laughs> but since I then, like that rule. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it, it just kind of, you know, it, it keeps you, it keeps you honest. Mm -hmm. And it just adds to the humility. Yeah, it really does. And I, I think that, you know, back then it was all about how many ingredients I could put on a plate and how awesome my food had to be. And that was a sign of success. And now it's just going out into a full dining room and seeing people enjoy my food is, is that is to me the most fulfilling part about it now. So it's, it's really like, you know, helped me grow and mature as a person and as a chef. That's a very grounded for, like chef owner answer. Cause I feel like a lot of people read those bad reviews, especially early on. And it's really easy to kind of throw up your defenses. I know for, for me, the first few 
kind of insulting reviews that we got was really hard for me to take it because I was trying to put all this positivity out there and I felt like I was getting a bunch of negativity back. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I think going through and kind of, you know, revisiting that stuff, maybe burning some sage when you're done and just kind of reminding yourself that that energy is always going to exist in the world and yep. how you deal with it is the most important thing. I mean, so you seem to have built, I was looking through on your website and you're so popular that you have to limit the the brunch size. Uh, of how many people can sit down at your tables, which, you know, again, that's one of those chef orders too, that, that I feel like people in the public don't always understand. Uh, but as operator, you actually do, especially someone who's been in the kitchen and, and understands front of house operations. But is there anything else in the last few years that you wish you could kind of like go back in time and tell yourself when you're getting started or maybe even just last month, just tell yourself, like, I wish, you know, you should do this differently. So you don't end up laying awake at night worrying about this or is there anything else? Cause I know I've had plenty of moments where I was like, if I had just not been so pig headed and I had listened to what everyone was telling me, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in now. Mm-hmm. So you want to run a restaurant is powered by back of house, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find filter and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other channels. So more in the beginning, I would say... I'm, I'm a very hard-headed person anyway. And I think that in the beginning, when I was younger and like starting out, absolutely, that's what I would tell myself. It's just like, just listen to other people, take advice. I think more now, the biggest thing I've learned, especially during COVID is not have, I have very like quick knee-jerk reactions to things sometimes. And I feel like we're in such a high-pressure, quick industry that you just sometimes have to just stop and take a break and just think about something before you make a big decision. I think, you know, during COVID, we, instead of the big thing I wish we had done is just closed and just regrouped and talked about it and come up, come up with a strategy. And I think you're so almost programmed to do things so quickly. I mean, it's even, I mean, Zach, you might you might have experienced this even with eating sometimes. It's like I am so programmed to eating while I'm standing up or multitasking or why I'm doing a million things. And just it's so important to just stop and take a second and just breathe and be and get a plan with your team. It's, it's so um, true. And that is really something I've learned to do over this past year. That was the, that was actually unfortunately one of the things that took me the longest to learn, I feel like was yeah just like being able to step back and it took my now fiance she was it specifically started with eating because she was like your meals are essentially little bites of food scattered in between like a three-hour window in the middle of the day for lunch you really have to you know reconsider that and like maybe get better at scheduling figure things out you don't always have the luxury of having the free time to do everything you want in the schedule as an owner as you know but yeah sure. that is it's a, that's a great takeaway i feel like that for me has that, i mean since then, have you found anything that kind of helped you 
is it just a self-awareness or have you, have you kind of worked out any kind of system that helps you manage your time differently? Yeah. Is it, is it hiring more people? Is it tools what's worked for you? I have. So, I mean, to answer your question, there's a lot of things, but I think what helps me the most is, you know, going out saying, I, I really try to take care of my immune system, which is, which is big. I think obviously too, what everyone's gone through the past year, I think that's something, a topic that no one really discusses is like, you know, yeah, you should be vaccinated and you should, you know, all those things. And I know that that's kind of up to debate as well, sure. but take care of yourself, wear a mask, do all those things. But it also is very important to get enough sleep and to eat well. And just like you're saying, with the, with the eating patterns to stop and slow down and meditate, take care of yourself. But I think business, yeah, you just, you got to take care of yeah. yourself and people, I, I feel like people just don't talk about that enough, but I think also what's, what's most important for me in business, which is, which has really helped me throughout my journey is self-help books and business books. There's a book called traction that I am a huge fan of that has really helped me to get my business on track. And it specifically talks about building a team and how you can just kind of get your vision back on track and how to like relinquish the control a little bit because I'm, I, I'm a control freak and it, and buttermilk is my baby. Right. And so I like to have my hands on everything, but it's, it's really about, you know, being okay with who you are and what seat that you reside in and letting go of the things that you're not so good at, because there's a million people that are really good at that, that will, that will take that over and take that ownership. So just, just learning to let go of the reins. And um, I have a great business coach as well and a great therapist, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot, a lot of people in my little community that um, I draw inspiration from and just being around like-minded people that are very positive. Mm -hmm. I always find um, it's helpful to talk to other people that are just, that are just positive. Excuse mm -hmm. me while I go and Google this book. Uh, to, to buy it for myself. Yeah, <laughs> it's the best. You have yeah, to read it. Um, we'll include a link. Yeah, and this is not a plug. This is not. A <laughs> I just love this book. It's like it's it's really. You should really read it, Zach. Like especially in your business, it's it's incredible. No, I honestly, some of the best advice I've gotten always comes from other owners, operators, on stuff like this. Just passing along a little piece of like a source of information that can change your life. So I am always grateful for that. And I also, I'm really glad to hear you talk about that too, the, the industry's focus. And this, this goes from the very, very top, from the big owners all the way down to the people who work, you know, front of house a couple nights a week, but the industry focus on physical and mental health and the, the change, I think mm -hmm. kind of where I'm going with this is I think the pandemic is kind of forcing the industry to reckon with a lot of the stuff you just talked about and I think post COVID, the industry is going to have to look a lot different for immediate safety concerns, but also because of realizations that kind of came through. What do you think the next six months to a year are going to look like now that we're not fully through this, but we're pushing through the later phases? Like what, what do you think your restaurants are going to look like? And what do you think the industry as a whole is going to do uh, as we kind of go back to normal? Yeah. You know, if you'd asked me three months ago or even, even a month ago, I would tell you that we were really geared more towards, and I still believe this, but like more of that fast, casual to go friendly. And if I was opening a new concept today, that's definitely what I would focus on. It, it's really interesting with buttermilk is we always, we felt like people were going to get so accustomed to the convenience of to go because 
on the weekends, we were never, this is pre COVID. We were not able to do to go food because the kitchen, the size of the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So we never offered it on the weekends. And then during COVID, obviously that flipped, right? Because a third of our dining room was open. Well, now as the dining room, as we are opening more and more of it every day, we're really seeing that need of people want to dine in. They want that experience. Now, I think they want convenience too. I definitely do. But for us, we're, we feel like we are getting a, a little bit more away, further away from the to-go business, which I'm actually surprised to see. I do think the biggest hurdle we're going to face in this next six months, I mean, we're, we're facing it right now is just staff. And like what you said before, how do we create a safe environment that has a work-life balance that's going to appeal to this next generation, like to the millennials and then the generation before them because, or after them, because they all want that balance. And it's very hard to compete of, you know, yeah, you can make great money as a server, but you don't make great money as a cook. And why do they want to do that when they can drive Uber or something else that's more attractive that has yeah. a fraction of the stress in it? So that is something very real that we're going to have to change somehow. And that's, I, I have not figured that out, but I know that that is something that's, that's a, a really very real discussion that we're all going to be faced with. And yet I feel like you've done so well too. I mean, when we talked last year, I know you were going through a lot of these changes and it was right when the pandemic had first hit in March, uh, March, April, when things were really, really bad across the entire North America, and honestly, I mean, across the entire world at that point. Oh, yeah. And yet you really came out strong. And I know that you uh, you have a, you have a cookbook now. Yes. And I know that your restaurant really, really came back. And I, and I thought I read somewhere that you're almost back to, you're like almost there pre-pandemic levels. Did I? Yeah. I mean, the recently this past month, like the weekly sales have been beating out prior year. So we've been, we've been doing great. I mean, which is, you know, I'm so, so thankful for. And it's actually funny when you mentioned the cookbook, the cookbook got released the week of the shutdown. That's <laughs> so what I thought. I had had this, yeah, I had this whole cookbook tour scheduled, everything got canceled. And so where I, you know, initially thought was going to be such a bad thing ended up being a, you know, a blessing in disguise because everybody was at home bored wanting to cook. Absolutely. So right. We ended up selling a ton, but you know, I honestly think I tell people this a lot and I think this applies to anything you do in life, but specifically in restaurants, mm -hmm. because it's such a tough, grueling industry. People always ask me, you know, advice about, should I open a restaurant or should I do this? And the same thing I tell them all the time is if you absolutely love it and you are going to hustle every single day, you will make it and you'll love it because it's the hardest industry and they call it, it's the hardest for a reason, right? But everyone gets this notion in their head that it's going to be so fun. And, you know, that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. But I think when you, when things get tough, right, which they do in restaurants all the time, it, it's how well can you pivot? How hungry are you? How bad do you want it? Because you, I really firmly believe with the right attitude, you can always turn a negative into a positive, right? It's just, you have to pivot and you have to learn how to, to do something else, right? I mean, I've seen so many restaurants, they had to close, but they fed frontline workers while they closed. And then that turned into like a whole new business for them. And, you know, so it was kind of the same thing with, with the cookbook and with COVID. We, 
we learned really quickly how to have a um, online e-commerce platform where you could buy things. And we started shipping and we had a closed down dining room. So instead of just sitting there doing nothing with it, we turned it into a shipping facility. So were you guys, were you shipping like products? Were you making things like food products, self-stable stuff and sending it out? We were shipping. So, so yeah, luckily we had, um, we had started previously had like pre um, COVID we had already started canning our jams. Like we're known for our jams and jellies because we're kind of our signature thing is the, is the biscuit. So we had already luckily had gone down that road. And so we were shipping things like t-shirts, jams, jellies, provisions, nothing real perishable, but more of like those dry, good um, retail products. And then, then obviously we introduced the cookbook and I've now since started a YouTube channel, which kind of invites people into my home life. Mm. And we also do some, some cookbook recipes on there. So again, I think you just got to get creative and just decide how you're going to reinvent yourself, you know? Who was it that originally convinced you to start the e-commerce thing? Because we were talking about this before, or Claudia and I have at least spoken about this. It's not usually the first thing on someone's mind, because you can be like a great chef and even like a really personable front of house person. But e-commerce, like marketing, things like that can be just not your area of forte. And it feels like for a lot of people now, that's sort of a requirement, especially post-COVID. But leading into COVID, it was already becoming yeah. mm-hmm. becoming the reality. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone help you with that? Or how did you like gear yourself up to enter that market? Because it's I'm I mean, I came from a techie background and I still struggle trying to get mine off the ground. I always resisted it. Always. But I knew with the cookbook coming out and and again, like this again was kind of a blessing in disguise pre-COVID, is that we were we had already begun the conversation of of starting this e-commerce platform. But I think it was two things. It was the cookbook coming out and the the marketing company I was working with at the time was like, look, you really need to get, you need to be able to ship this book. Mm-hmm. And then also I think just the customers, the customers wanted that product into their homes. And we, um, the other big event that, that really catapulted the, the e-commerce side was we were on diners, drive-ins and dives on, on the food network. And I'll never forget it. After we got done filming a very long day, Guy Fieri, he's who is an incredible advocate for restaurants yeah. and just yeah is just a really good soul. Um, he really wants your restaurants to succeed, kind of salt to the earth type of guy. And he held my hand. I'll never forget it. At the very end, he goes, "You need to get ready for this because this is going to air, and you need to be ready." He's like, "You need to redo your website. You need to learn how to ship." Wow. Yeah. He was like, "I don't, you know." He's like, "Because people are going to call you from all over the country, and they're going to yeah. want." And he was so right. He was so right. Yeah. And this was, we filmed the show, I think in 2012, 2014, mm. maybe. So people were doing e-commerce, but it was pretty far off our, our radar map. Mm-hmm. And that was just very solid advice because he was right. Right after that, people were calling from all over and they wanted um, the biscuits. I come from the entrepreneur space. And I have to tell you, the, the, all this, the startups that I used to talk to that went on the um, the Shark Tank show were told the same thing. Yeah. Like half of them, their website Very similar afterwards. And so I feel like this is yes. a good piece of advice for anyone that decides to go on national TV before it airs. Make yes. sure you have all of your I's dotted and your T's crossed on every single digital platform because you're about to be pummeled with new customers and people that are wildly interested in you. 
and make sure you're Instagrammable too when they visit because you're going to get so much free <laughs> press from this. Yes. And I don't know if, um, I think I'm, I'm sure Zach, you know, of milk bar and Christina Tozzi, you're that's in your of neighborhood, course. but she, yeah. she was on, I was listening to her like about a year ago. She was on, um, how I built this with Guy Raz and he was asking her, I think she, she was saying some lady, some like elderly lady had called milk bar, like right when they had opened and, and said like, we, we want your cookies or something. And she's like, how am I going to tell this lady? No. And that kind of, evolved into them shipping and figuring it out, you know? Oh, wow. And, and it's kind of a similar thing with us. It was a lot of people just, you know, I had some great advice from, a, from a huge fat food network star, but even pre that, like, how do you tell these people no that, that want your biscuits, you know, it's, and it's, it's obviously just a way to spread your brand nationally. Right. Because otherwise you're kind of just, kept in, in just this one little region or one city of Atlanta that local, yeah, local. You're, yeah. Local you're just, you're, you're yeah. Put in this little spot, um, where you can be all over. So, mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's no, there's nothing quite like getting that initial Guy Fieri bump, you know, initial wind in the sails. Uh, and I think with COVID stuff now that kind of normalizes everything, you think you're going to stick with this as like a business, like a, as, as a thrust for the business. Cause it does feel like a lot of people have gotten comfortable with it. And I think now is from a branding perspective outside the, you know, the really cool exclusive merch that people buy up here in New York. There's a lot of these like one-off fashion restaurant collab things that I like, really move, but there's also like the really cool like sauces and condiments and stuff that gets sent out. Do you, do you see yourself keeping shipping jams and things like that going forward? It's not really something you want to pull back from, right? Yeah. So um, we actually, it's, it's funny enough. So we, we are not open at night. Um, and we're actually closed on Mondays as well. So it gives us a lot of opportunity to, to start doing some, some PM like prep and, and organization and just cleaning and, and all that stuff. Cause we have the space, we have the whole kitchen. So I recently just hired um, a chef to come on almost like as a culinary director, but she is going to head up our um, preserving and canning program. So right now a co-packer does it because there's a lot of, um, you know, you have to have a HACCP plan and, and all these like red tape you have to go through. So we are actually working with someone right now to get that HACCP plan and we're going to start canning and preserving on site. So to answer your question with that, that's going to let us do more seasonal jams and things like that. And so we'll start shipping like jam bundles and, you know, maybe a jam club or things like that. So right. absolutely, yeah. we're going to keep keep shipping. Was all of this that you've done the the momentum you needed to start Milk Drop? Because I have to tell you, from what I can see on that Instagram, I want to order an entire crate of biscuits and pass them out to people for birthdays and stuff. I mean, it's so creative what you're doing. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so, so we've always, so, you know, I've always had I'm a visionary. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a million ideas every five seconds. Right. And, and half yeah. of them never turn into anything, but <laughs> I've always had kind of, I call it my biscuit lab. So I've always tested out different biscuits, like out of my home kitchen and with buttermilk, you know, it, it's buttermilk kitchen is, is amazing, but it's a very classic, um, simple style restaurant, right? We can't get too crazy with, with the dishes and this was kind of my creative outlet to bring a different, maybe attract a little bit different of a, of a audience. And it's, it's more of a hip, creative, innovative way to do biscuits that I feel like haven't been done. And 
during COVID, you know, it's, it's so funny when I think back on it, so many great things have come out of COVID, you know, obviously yeah. a lot of bad things happened as well. Sure. It forced it people to us- innovate though, and think about things differently. Yeah, and I think it that really, and it gave you some time to yeah. think, you know, yeah. um, but, but luckily for us, we were able to secure the building right next to us. There's a, there's a back area in the space that the building, my landlord owns like five of these little houses and we were able to secure the building right next to us. And we, honestly, we just had it as office space because we had turned our dining room into a shipping facility. Well, when we opened back up, mm-hmm. all those boxes had to go somewhere. So we were fortunate to be able to move it next door. But with that space, we were like, well, this would be an awesome way to sell the biscuits. So all of the biscuits get produced out of Buttermilk's um, kitchen, but then we sell them out of the, the little space next door. Um, so it's really cool. It was just like a fun way to do that, that, that again, provided us with that opportunity. So we, I feel um, like you have your own virtual ghost kitchen brand there that yes, you've built in there, right? It's, it's, it's really essentially a ghost kitchen is what yeah. it is. But, you know, the only yeah. difference is we do pre-orders, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they come and pick it up from the next door, little window and we don't let anybody inside. It's just literally looks like a little tiny house. And we open up the window and they come and pick up their order. And it's been so fun. It's been wildly successful. Like it's, um, I just like pinch myself every time. Uh, they, every, the team makes fun of me because the, the night before we release the, um, the orders, the online orders, I always get nervous. I'm like, do you think it's going to sell out? Do you think it's going to sell out? And they're like, yes, it's going to sell out. <laughs> you know, they always laugh at me. And does it sell out every time? Oh, within like 10 minutes. It's been, you know, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to jinx it because I still get, you know superstitious about it but um it's been wildly successful so it feels it feels awesome but going back to what you were saying like you want to we're, we're playing around right now the next step is freezing them um mm-hmm. and we're going to start selling them as like half dozen options and then the option that the the next step from that will probably be shipping so We'll see. Fingers oh, crossed. I hope there's birthday cake one yeah. I can send to my friends for their birthdays. Yes. yes. The, all the sprinkles. The, and the, the unicorns, the little unicorns, the funfetti. Um, yes, unicorns. exactly. The build, build your own biscuit. Build your own gourmet biscuit, I yeah, should say. Yeah, a little kit. So we'll see. The sky's the limit. I want biscuits sent up to New York so badly. Uh, I again, late in life. Well, y'all can be our guinea pigs if you don't mind. Because we really need to gladly don't, oh, don't have to use my own. For real, give me y'all's address. I will for sure. Um, <laughs> because we want to ship to some it's LA right. people, to New York, to Chicago people. Because we want to see how they travel. So. Oh, I'd be happy to try this. So test definitely, I would love for y'all to do it. Definitely, we will be your influencers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. Awesome, Suzanne. I, everyone has this question in their own mind in this industry, and it's almost always impossible to answer. But you seem like you've kind of got this treaded out relatively well. Do you? Where do you see yourself in a year, or five years, given everything that's already changing and and the massive amounts of of recalibration the industry is doing? What do you see yourself doing in five years? And and what does it look like for you personally, not just the industry? I think, um, oh gosh, um, it's a hard question to answer because my mind changes a lot. But I, I know that if I do, I do want to open something, you know, I definitely want to continue with the Milk Drop Biscuits, maybe um, turning that into to a shipping e-commerce type platform. I want to continue to grow buttermilk and um, I don't, I don't know if I see a lot of restaurants in my future business wise. Um, I know that I want to get into, 
I really want to focus more on that, that life work balance and, mm-hmm. and maybe start a family and do, you know, I, I, I'm getting married and under two months. So Congratulations. that's going to be a big change. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to say. I know that I love what I do and I'm very fortunate to do something I'm, I'm passionate about every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like the lifestyle arena as well. Like I'd mentioned before, I, we just started a YouTube channel focusing on more on my home life. And so I would love to explore that more. Um, it's always something before I've been very, I'm a very um, private person yeah. personally. So it's hard to push yourself, um, to open yourself up to, to other people, like your, your personal life. Definitely. So that's something that, um, I want to explore more to see if I'd like to go down that that route, but I don't know, you know, hopefully just getting to do what I'm passionate about every day, which is cooking and, and building brands and, and getting to work with awesome people. So I was secretly hoping that you would say you were opening a buttermilk in Chicago, but uh, a girl can only dream, right? Chicago, is that where you are? You're in Chicago? I'm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you have so many good, have you ever been to Lula Cafe? Oh yes. That is a staple. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants in the world is, is Lily Cafe. Yeah. I actually staged there. Um, and it is such a special place, but, um, I don't know, you know, I, I think again, I, I'm, I feel like I'm done with seated and served mm-hmm. full service restaurants. If I do anything, it's going to be a small, fast, casual, uh, grab and go type of feel, but, but, mm-hmm. but not losing focus on great service. Yeah. Um, that is something that, that I feel like is very, very important, but, um, I don't think I'm going to open the, the, the full service ever again. That is, um, it's just too hard. It's too hard. That's okay. It sounds like one and one and done is okay. Well, it yeah. sounds like you're doing yeah, so many yeah, yeah. creative so, things. We'll see. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much for being on the show with us today, Suzanne. This was a great conversation. I so appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. And um, I hope to hope to talk to you all again very soon. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, Eat.News. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms. 